Today we look at a, a, an important idea for anybody who's involved in education or in leadership or in coaching or in life, uh, and that is the difference between, um, or the correlation between, the connection between two emotions. Uh, the one is depression and, and, and sadness, and the other is shame. And, and the, uh, the correlation of these two is something we learn from two sugyas that we'll have a look at. Firstly, there's our own sugya in Daf Samach Zion, Amodalev, where the Gemara says, um, initially, Barishoyna hoyu koshrin lashon shel zuhurit al petach haulam mibachutz. Originally, this, the, this thread that they used to later on tie onto the, uh, onto the horns of the animal that was sent off, the seir that was sent off to the cliff, originally that used to be tied onto the entrance of the Heichal and the Beit HaMikdash. That didn't go off to the desert with the seir originally. Hilbina yusmechin. When this turned white, that was a sign that the kapora had been accepted and the tshuva was accepted and everybody was happy. Uh, but when it didn't uh, turn white, the Bnei Israel, the people in the Beis Amikdash who were watching this, used to get depressed and felt shame. Because of that, they decided to put the, the, um, the thread in the inside so that the public wouldn't see it. Only the Kohanim would see it. And still the Kohanim used to peep inside and they used to see whether it went white or it didn't. Uh, they used to get sad if it didn't get white. That's when, that's when they were Masaka and they instituted that it's tied to the rock and it's tied to the horns of the animal so that when the animal is pushed over the edge, uh, Part of, it, part of it goes with the animal, part of it stays behind. So that's the Gemara that we have. Um, the, um, there's a parallel sugya in Rosh Hashanah. There's one very small difference in the Shana. The Sugi and Rosh Hashanah goes on with a further discussion, but in the actual piece that we've just learned, in the Brysa that we've just brought, the Gemara and Rosh Hashanah is very slightly different. So I've brought them both, and it's important for you to, to see the difference. Uh, the, the difference is that in the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, the word mitbayishin is not there. So our Gemara says... Initially, when the thread was on the outside, they got sad and, and, sh and felt shame. After they moved it inside and people used to still peep at it, they got sad, but it doesn't say they felt shame. Why not? What's the difference? And the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah brings the same brisa and doesn't mention shame at all. So, so what is with the relationship? And more important, what, what we need to look at is why were the Chachomim concerned about that? So it's, it's Yom Kippur. Is it so terrible to get sad and a little ashamed on Yom Kippur of what you've done? That's part of the whole purpose of Yom Kippur. Why were the Chachomim concerned that the people were getting sad and feeling shame, so much so that they changed the, position, the positioning of this chut so that it shouldn't cause shame? What, what is that all about? So the, the Yom Truah, I, I had to do some research to find out who the Yom Truah is, and he's such a fasc fascinating person. He's Reb Shlomo Ibn Chaviv, um, and he came from Salonika in Greece. Salonika was a thriving community until the Second World War, where the, the Nazis wiped it out. 
And it was probably established or certainly became, became significant after the Spanish expulsion. It was one of those places to which a lot of the people from Spain went. We've talked about Livorno as being one of them on the Italian coast, Salonica is on the Greek coast. And these were trade routes, so they were able to travel from Spain to, to Salonica. And there they established a community where Rabbi Yaakov um, Ibn Khaviv was. This is 17th century. Um, so the question is, you know, when I, when I saw this and I saw his, his kasha, which I'll share with you in a moment, the question is, is he part of our canon? Isn't he? Do we have to take him uh, into account as we reason through the sugya? Or is, is this just a different school of thought? But it's really interesting because he can, he's a descendant of the Namukha Yosef. So not only does he come from, from, from Spain, but he comes from that Spanish school of the Ran and initially the Ramban. So it's all of that group of Rishonim. He's an early Acharon. But he's a descendant of the Nemuka Yosef himself. So he brings with him that learning from Spain. Later on, he goes to Yerushalayim and he becomes accepted as a, a Godelby Israel in Yerushalayim. Um, and, and there's evidence of, of uh, correspondence between him and the Prechodosh, between him and the Machne Ephraim, who are all absolutely part of our canon of Gedoli Israel. So he's part of our world. Although he was in Salonika in Greece, he's absolutely part of our, of our world of learning. He was also the grandfather of the Me'am Lo'ez. Me'am Lo'ez used to be more popular than it is today. It's a 23-volume work. Um, it wasn't written all by the grandson of, of, um, uh, of Moshe ibn, ibn Chaviv. It, was, um, it, it kind of evolved a bit after that time too. But it's a beautiful anthology of all the Midrashim on the parasha. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's not short. If you're learning, it, sometimes a whole volume is devoted to a parasha, sometimes a few parishes to a volume. But he weaves all the Midrashim of Chazal into a beautiful narrative. It's like reading a story. And in reading the story, you get the full perspective of the parasha using all of the, um, all of the Midrashim that are available. So it's a wonderful, wonderful work. Um, the, the, it, interestingly, the Mamla is the grandson of, of Rab Moshe ibn Chaviv, later goes to Constantinople where he wants to publish um, his grandfather's work. That's this, the Yom Trua. Uh, and in Constantinople, he, men, he, he meets up with the, the Mishnah Lamelech um, and, um, and he publishes his work. So he's very much part of our world. And the Yom Trua says, I'm not sure what the Chazal were worried about, what Chachomim were worried about. Were they worried about their depression when it didn't turn red, when it didn't turn white, and they didn't want them to be depressed? Or were they worried about their joy when it did turn white, and they didn't want, he didn't want them to be too complacent on Yom Kippur? They see it turning white, and oh, everything's been accepted, and now we go back and party, and, and we have a Mutsi Yom Kippur party where we talk Losh and Horror just the way we used to before Yom Kippur. And nothing's changed because everything's, everything's forgiven. And Chazal didn't want that. So it's better that they didn't see it. It says the Yom Trua, I'm not sure and I couldn't find evidence which of the two it is. Comes the Oruch Lanair a hundred years later. The Oruch Lanair is another fascinating person. Oruch Lanair was the Rov in, in Hamburg, a place called Altuna, which was a part of, a part of Hamburg at the, uh, uh, the beginning of the 19th century. And what's important about the Oruch Lanair, apart from him being an unbelievable God will be Israel and Tamid Chochem, uh, and Achron, who's really important, apart from, from that, he was very well educated in, in the secular world, in new languages, in new science, very, very well educated. His Talmidim were Rabbi Zriel Hildesheimer and Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch. So if you want to look at the initiator of what is known as modern orthodoxy, it was the Oruch Lanair. 
Ulrich Lenné was the first person who realized that in, in Western Europe, in Germany, which was modern, so to say, the, the model of Eastern Europe wasn't working. People weren't understanding it. People weren't relating it to it. People weren't connecting to it. And he began, and that work was taken much further by Rabbi Zeril Hildesheim and by Rabbi Shushan Falhersh, to, to westernize the way Torah was explained. Um, and, and he, the Oroch was rejected by some of the Eastern European Gedolim, particularly in Hungary, as being reform. Although he fought reform, and later the Basriel Hildesheim and the Shemshul Hirsch fought reform bitterly, because that was when reform was getting going, and they saw the danger of it. They were bitter opponents of reform, and they battled, and they fought, and they made enemies. But the Hungarian Gedolim, who didn't really know what was going on in Western Europe, thought that the Oroch was a, a bit of a reformer himself, uh, with, with all his secular knowledge and so on. What's important to appreciate is the same thing as I mentioned to you about the, the Vilna Gaon and his school's objection to Hasidus, or to the Hasidim at the time, was not to the Hasidim and it was not to the Kabbalah and it was not to Hasidus. It was to the intermingling of Hasidus into Lomdus. That the Lomdus, the learning, had to be pure. There's a methodology to the learning. There's Hasidus on the side, that's fine. Uh, or to use Hasidus to explain and to articulate ideas of halacha, but not to extrapolate, not to reason with, with Hasidus, not to reason with Kabbalah. And those Gedolei Hasidus who, who kept it separate, like the Chidushi Harim and the Sfasemis and the uh, Avnenes of the people we talked about, they were completely accepted by the Lithuanian world because their Lomdus was, was, was brilliant, brilliant Lomdus and it was pure. The same applies to people like the Oruch Lener and the Bezreel Hildesheimer and the Shushan Rafal Hirsch. They used Western terminology and models and understanding to explain Chazal. Uh, but they didn't use it to extrapolate. They didn't, in their learning, you don't see it coming in in the way they learn something out. The learning was pure. And that's why they're accepted as Gedoli Yisrael, although... They were so, so modern in their, in their outlook because their modernity is in how they articulate and express, not in the way they, they learn and they, and they analyze the Gemara. So the Oruch Lener brings a raya from the Gemara in, further on in Rosh Hashanah that it must be that they were worried about people being too happy and, and being, becoming complacent. That must have been what it is because later on the Gemara asks in, in Rosh Hashanah uh, if it was Rabbi Yochanan Zaka who in, introduced it uh, did it ever go? Did it ever go white? And Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai's time, it didn't ever go white. So you see from that, the Gemara is worried about what happens when it goes white. They get too happy. Says the Oruch You see from there that that's what what we're concerned about: it going white. And he brings another right raya from the Busho. He says in our Gemara, it, says, it talks about Busho. Uh, what's so terrible if they're embarrassed? They're embarrassed about what they did. They're feeling ashamed of what they did. That's not the end of the world. What's, what's, what's wrong with that? And I, I want to suggest, we don't have time to go into it in depth. Maybe it's a Tuesday issue. Um, I want to suggest that, that there's a difference between the two sugyas. There's a reason why Bush is left out in Rosh Hashanah and why we've got it. There's a psychological difference. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah holds that, that there's nothing wrong with Busha. So it doesn't mention Busha. Shame was not the reason they changed the situation. They weren't worried about shame. There's nothing wrong with being a, with being a little ashamed on Yom Kippur. That's how we, how we should be. So Busha doesn't come into the reasoning. But the Al Gemara in Yuma does speak about Busha. Either Chaner says, what's wrong with Busha? Al Gemara sees that, and we see that Chazal were very worried about Busha. And it's interesting that in recent research over the last five to seven years, the correlation between depression and, and shame has become clear. Uh, 
And whereas I, for example, always assumed that shame leads to depression, the opposite is the truth. Depression leads to shame. And there's a beautiful definition of the difference between shame and guilt. And, and the definition is, is that guilt arises from a negative evaluation of one's behavior, while shame arises from a negative evaluation of oneself. Guilt is the feeling of doing wrong, while shame is the feeling of being wrong. This is by a person called J. Bol, but it's such a beautiful definition. So, we see, so with that we, we understand. Chazal are worried. They don't mind guilt. You're allowed to feel guilty on Yom Kippur. You have to feel guilty on Yom Kippur. We bring korban chattas for ourselves, for the community, for the Kohen. Of course we're feeling guilt. Guilt is about what I did. But they started feeling shame. And the shame came from depression. So the first thing that happened, they saw, oh my goodness, it hasn't turned red. It hasn't turned white. That means we're terrible. The Rebbein Shalom has rejected us. We talked about rejection. When was in the in the Tuesday show we, yeah, we talked about the power of rejection and what that means and whether you can recover from rejection or you can't even ever recover the idea of dichui that once you something is rejected or someone is rejected you can't recover and Chaim, yes that whole discussion we discuss, we had but on Yom Kippur the thing doesn't turn white that means the Rebbeinu Shalom has rejected our tshuva that led them to depression look how great they were we get depressed. Uh, because uh, a restaurant closes down or because we get locked down in a, in a pandemic, we get depressed. That didn't depress them. What depressed them was that the Rebbeinu didn't accept their kapora. And once they became depressed, depression, okay, we can still deal with depression, but that lead, led to shame. And shame is, I don't believe in who I am. I've lost confidence and, and valuation of myself. It's not that I'm doing wrong, it's I am wrong as a human being. And that's negative and destructive. Once you start feeling shame, then you get into a, into a terrible spiral. And so we have to be very aware of it and conscious of it, that we understand how to feel guilty, even how to cause guilt. So sometimes I'll call one of you up and I'll say, hey, you went at the shear, that makes you feel a little guilty, that's okay. It's all right to feel guilty, then that makes one say, oh, it doesn't feel so comfortable to feel guilty. So tomorrow I would rather not feel guilty, so I'll come to the shoe. That's okay. But to shame somebody, that they feel shame, there's, a, there's such a narrow line. But the one is so destructive that Chazal changed twice where they position this piece of, 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 of thread so that it shouldn't cause shame, shouldn't cause depression. It could, should only cause, it should only cause guilt. Uh, we don't have the chance to go into it, but there's a beautiful Rabbi Yakim also. It's clear that the um, Rabbi Yakim, who's from the time of Rashi, one of the early Rishonim, learns our Gemara not like the Oroch That's why I'm suggesting our Gemara is not like the Oroch Lanai. may be able to bring a Raya from Rosh Hashanah, but not from, from our Gemara. Uh, and he also talks about the difference of when they saw it and when they didn't. They always heard, even when the, the red thread was put on the Seir, the news came back. Did it turn white or didn't it turn white? So they knew that. But there's a difference when it comes to shame. There's a difference between hearing and seeing. Well, you're not shamed by what you hear. You're shamed by what you see, and even more important, what others see of you. To be in public when you're shamed. There's this thread. It doesn't turn, it doesn't turn white. Maybe I'm to blame, or in some ways I am to blame. And the whole community is here and sees that. That creates a feeling of shame, which is negative, and Qazal do everything they can to avoid it.